We have had a long weekend here at Gateway. One of a, just a really good brother and a good friend, one of our elders, passed away. And uh, we had a funeral service for him yesterday. And it has been wonderful and celebratory, exhausting, and very taxing, honestly. So I'm apologizing in advance. I'm exhausted this morning. And I don't say that so anyone will feel sorry for me. I say that in case I get dizzy, I'm going to have to tap out. One of you people in the front row is going to have to come up. <laughs> Let's get ready. This is a little bit of a tour de force this morning. We're going to take a big survey of things. I'm going to sit while we do so, if that's okay with you. We've got really, really important ground to cover today. I've done a lot of these conversations over the course of my life, and I don't know many that are more important than this one. So really glad that you're here for this. And I want to say, I don't think any of you are here by accident. We're going to start with one of the most epic passages in the entire Bible. It's a conversation between Jesus and his friends, and it's the last week of his life. And it's a little reminiscent of the kind of week we've had here at Gateway. It was a weird week. It was a troubling week. There were some serious ups and downs. And Jesus got his friends around him, and he says, hey, don't be troubled. And he's speaking exactly to people like us, you know, in the middle of life. And some of you have had troubling weeks or months or years, or you're about to. And I think he's frankly speaking to us. But he's speaking to us more than in the extraordinary troubles that you and I run into. He's, he's speaking to us in every aspect of our lives. So I really want us to dial in to this passage because it's so epic. This is from John 14. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to read along as Jay reads. This is Jay, Gateway, this is Jay. And Jay's going to read the scriptures. Anyway, if you don't have a Bible, if you go to mygateway.life, the scripture is there for you under the sermon card. If you go to the today's sermon, it will have the passage for today. And we'd love for you to follow along. I'm going to be rude today. I'm going to sit. But I'd like for you to go old school and let's stand out of reverence for God's word as Jay reads from John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you, such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Thank you, Jay. You may be seated. Well, I want to share with you an absolutely true story that somebody sent me this week. A Minneapolis couple decided to go to Florida, thaw out from a particularly icy winter. 
They planned to stay at the same hotel where they spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Because of their hectic schedules, it was difficult to coordinate travel, so the husband left for Florida on Thursday with his wife flying down the following day. The husband checked into their honeymoon suite, and to his surprise, there were computers in the room. So he decided to send an email to his wife. However, he accidentally left out one letter in her email address, and without realizing his error, he sent the email. Meanwhile, at the same time, somewhere in Houston, a widow had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He'd been a good, faithful man who had been called to heaven following a heart attack. The widow decided to check her email, expecting messages from relatives and friends. After reading the first message, she screamed and fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room, found his mother on the floor, and saw the computer screen, which read, To my loving wife, dated that morning, subject, I've arrived. <laughs> I know you're surprised to hear from me, the note read. They have computers here now, and you are allowed to send emails to your loved ones. I've just arrived and have been checked in. I've seen that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Sure is freaking hot down here. <laughs> okay. Listen, around the world, uh, billions of people seem happy in their non-Christian faiths. Or even in no faith at all. More people today than ever uh, claim that no one has a corner on the truth. So why do Christians keep insisting that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Isn't this a bit outdated, maybe arrogant? After all, exactly what's the big deal with Jesus? Why Jesus? Why is he necessary? What does he have to do with my life? John Franck is a Christian author and theologian, theology professor. I'd never heard of him, but he wrote a fascinating article that I read several years ago in a magazine called Christianity Today about this question. He had evidently been speaking at a supposedly Christian conference where there were quite a few postmodern philosophers also speaking. They'd been in a panel together, and most of them were professing Christians as well. He says this in the article. On the last day, the discussion focused on Christian engagement with other religions. I resonated with much of what was said. They talked about tolerance and learning to speak together and listening and learning from one another, but I also experienced a growing sense of unease. Eventually, I asked our distinguished guests this question, quote, as those who self-identify with the Christian tradition, how do you understand the uniqueness of Jesus Christ? Their response was that, of course, Jesus is unique. But they continued, so are the leaders of other world religions. While it's certainly true that Jesus is unique and different from other religious leaders, they said, it's also true that they are unique in relation to him. The uniqueness of Jesus was no different from that of other important religious figures, only in this way, they suggested, is equality among religions established as a basis for interreligious dialogue. He went on to describe how prevalent this kind of thinking is in our culture in various places. For instance, he talked about how many Hollywood movies espouse this and how many are built on this assumption. He described a couple of specific movies, and then, and then he said this, this is predictable Hollywood fare, but Christians have historically affirmed much more than this when we confess the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We believe that Jesus is nothing less than the incarnate Son of God in whom the fullness of deity dwells in human form, fully divine, fully human, and the way, the truth, and the life. However, 
Recent evidence suggests that what Christians have historically affirmed is now up for grabs. According to a 2010, I told you I read this several years ago, the statistics are even worse now. According to a 2010 national survey conducted by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, 52% of all American Christians believe that non-Christian faiths can lead to eternal life. While many factors may account for these findings, it seems clear that a surprising number of Christians are not convinced of Jesus' unique nature or role, including many of us. So what's up with that? Why Jesus? Why the way, the truth, and the life? What does that even mean? And why did Christians ever believe it? And what do we do with it? Why Jesus? Most importantly, what does it have to do with me? So let's begin at the beginning. But if you're going to put any stock in Jesus whatsoever, you have to believe the story. And it's admittedly a remarkable story. A guy lives this incredible life. It's filled with a host of nature-defying miracles. He gets killed. Three days later, he walks out of the grave. On its face, it stretches believability, right? Honestly, that's why at least every other year here at Gateway, we take a hard look at whether or not it's even reasonable to believe the whole Jesus story. We actually try to examine the evidence together. And if you tend to be skeptical, it may surprise you, but it's a very reasonable thing to believe. I'm not saying that anyone can prove that Jesus actually walked out of the tomb three days after he was physically dead, but there are reasons. There are rational reasons to believe the story. For instance, when we have these discussions, we talk about the empty tomb. The, the first witnesses, all of them, Roman, Jewish, and Christian, they acknowledged the tomb was empty. And right after it happened, no one expected it or stood to gain from the story. So where did it come from? And by the way, the alternate theories that are often suggested to explain where a story about Jesus' empty tomb might have come from, they're far from convincing. We also talk about the early witnesses, like the letters in the New Testament. For instance, Paul mentions Jesus' resurrection in a letter to a group of Christians he wrote in the ancient city of Corinth. That letter was written less than 25 years after the events happened. Paul says in that letter that 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus at one time. And then he adds this, quote, most of whom are still living, end quote. How do we account for this sighting? And that's just one example of the witnesses' compelling stories. But the most influential factor in my thinking has always been the lives of the first followers themselves, their lives. And we talk about that as well regularly. Something dramatic happened to them to these guys that changed the trajectory of their lives. I've often used a quote from Charles Colson in this connection because it's so powerful and poignant. Colson, some of you know, was President Richard Nixon's lawyer during the Watergate incident. He was one of the few people who actually went to prison because of what happened there. Charles Colson said this, quote, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How, he asks. Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That's some of what we talk about when we discuss whether or not we can believe this event actually happened. But even if it happened, what does that have to do with us? 
I mean, it's amazing, yes, and it's a really interesting story. I want to know about it. It might even change our view of death, and that's pretty cool and kind of crazy. But other than that, what does it have to do with me? Step aside for a second. I hope I'm pronouncing this guy's name right. But in 2006, Dean Karnazes, I think, he ran, some of you heard this, he ran 50 marathons in 50 states over the course of 50 days. Now that is an incredible superhuman feat. Well, it's not superhuman because a human did it, but still, it's amazing. And it tells us something about humans, doesn't it? It's inspiring, it's amazing, but it's not really anything else. It it doesn't mean anything to my life in the same way. What about Jesus? Why does that story stick around, and what does it have to do with us Why do we gather here and talk about it? Why do we make such a big stinking deal about Jesus? Why Jesus? Well, it interests you to know that 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 question is what occupied the thinking and the writing of these first followers. As they walked away from that event, they were left wondering, what? And what does this mean? By the way, they came away with some conclusions that are mind-blowing and life-altering. We're going to hit some of that today based on what Jesus had taught them and based on their experience of him and what they saw. So if you'll permit me, we're going to take a quick survey of some of the conclusions because it's mind-blowing stuff. And then we're going to wrap up with that passage that Jay read for us this morning. So honestly, the Apostle Paul gives us the clearest answer to the why Jesus question, so we're going to hit him up quite a bit in the survey. To understand what Paul says, you have to start with four foundational principles. Make note of these. Number one, First of all, think of the universe as having been created, not accidentally, but with the greatest intention and care. Secondly, you have to think of human beings as having been purposefully shaped to occupy the pinnacle of that creation and being enabled to actually relate to the creator. Thirdly, you have to think of the universe as having a moral framework. He paused for dramatic effect. Paul calls this moral framework the law of sin and death. This moral framework is as inherent, it's as intrinsic to the universe as gravity or light. That's why Paul calls it a law. It it operates the same way over the entire expanse of creation. Finally, fourth, when that moral law is violated, existence is irrevocably altered. Just as surely as two bodies are drawn toward one another because of gravity. Remember, it's the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. Now these principles, these truths, form the philosophical and moral foundation for everything that the New Testament authors thought. They don't address these and they don't explain them so much as they assume them. They do at points, but mostly they just assume this. And we do the same thing here at Gateway. We actually believe these truths. And we believe that there are good reasons to believe these truths. Now, it's impossible to prove these principles beyond doubt, but a very good, reasonable case can be made for this worldview. All right. So if you're skeptical, let me ask you for a few minutes to just allow these truths because we don't have time to talk about all this and and we're going to focus on the why Jesus question. If you're a believer, then allowing these truths will be much easier for you. So here's our foundation. Now let's go from there. So given this foundation, now let's imagine that we're in a courtroom. 
Now, the New Testament authors don't literally tell you, imagine you're in a courtroom, but the Apostle Paul especially, his argument is laced with courtroom language and legal language. He uses it liberally. So let's imagine it. Let's imagine that we're in a courtroom, and to that picture, let's add, not only are you in a courtroom, but God is your judge. Now, given these foundational principles, we know that, and this is the, if you miss everything else, don't miss this principle. We know that if the moral law has been violated to the slightest degree, then death is the sentence. Why do I say to the slightest degree? It turns out that's a key observation for many of us. If you know how the universal laws work, then you know it doesn't matter if I drop a pencil or a bowling ball. They're going to both hit the ground. They're both going to hit the floor because of the law of gravity. So I'll go ahead and admit that you're certainly far better than Hitler in terms of violating the moral framework of the universe. You may even be better than your neighbor. But if the moral framework has been violated to the slightest degree, then the law of sin and death takes effect. Just like the law of gravity acts on even the smallest bodies of matter. If you get a chance to read Paul's letter to the Romans sometime, you'll see that he spends three chapters making this point. This means basically, we're in trouble. Paul said it like this, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I honestly think we know it. We feel the weight of our violation. We see the effects in our relationships. We experience the burden and sleepless nights and guilt and shame and the emotional static created between us and others and us and God. We have blown it. We're in trouble. So here's the question. How do we satisfy the judge? Remember the courtroom. How do we get a non-guilty verdict? How do we undo moral gravity? Paying the penalty is unavoidable. It's inherent. It's intrinsic. It's not even really a penalty. It's an inevitability. It's built into the universe. At one point, Paul says this very soberly, the wages of sin is death. And he offers no exceptions and no provisos. There are no conditions, especially for those northern Virginians who live in that beautiful South Riding neighborhood. Their yard is gorgeous and their kids are spectacular. They're going to go to Harvard one day. There are no exceptions. What does that mean for you and me? Again, it means we're in deep trouble. It means we're going to end up sending emails from Florida, only much worse. Our existence will change. We will be cut off from life in the now and forever. So back to the courtroom. Now imagine the verdict comes down and we are found guilty. The sentence is passed. The moral framework has been violated. Your existence will change forever. You will be cut off from life in every way. We're devastated, of course. We barely know what that means. We don't know what to do. But at that exact moment, someone bursts into the back of the courtroom and says, wait, wait, stop. 
I paid that penalty. I subjected myself to the law of sin and death on your behalf. I've already fallen and hit the ground. I lived within creation, but I did not violate the moral framework, even to the slightest degree. And yet my existence was temporarily altered and dramatically so. In order to take your violation on myself, all you have to do is to acknowledge your violation and accept my gift in your stead. My name is Jesus. Paul explains it like this. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And when he uses that word righteousness, he means rightly connected to God and to one another. It's fascinating to me that in more than one place, the New Testament authors make an appeal to the Old Testament sacrificial system. On the one hand, that was a bizarre system. But on the other hand, it's really perfectly understandable and it's approachable. I think that's why God gave that system. It's an audiovisual aid and it's a relief valve. Look, I know that several of you are serious skeptics and many of us have to fight our way to belief regularly, but deep down inside, we get this. We get the principles we talked about. We live with the shame and guilt and spiritual and emotional static that comes from having violated the moral framework of the universe. We often know something's wrong. We felt it from others and we felt it in ourselves. And God gave a system that enabled the Old Testament saints to find relief, to express their guilt in and through the death of something of value to them. It made sense because it's a universal principle. And through this system, they found some symbolic relief and even some actual forgiveness. But it was so perpetual. The sacrificial system, it, it was constant, and it was always understood to be only partial and representative. And here's what these first guys, these authors of the New Testament, here's what they came to believe. Honestly, I think it's what they came to discover, or it's what was shown to them. It's it was revealed to them. Here it is. That whole sacrificial system, it pointed to Jesus. All of their sacrifices were pointing the way to what God would ultimately do. He would make the ultimate sacrifice. And in that sacrifice, the system would be complete. It would become real, in effect. The moral framework would be satisfied. It would be set right. Jesus fulfilled that system. So, do not let your hearts be troubled. And he was speaking literally to us. And the trouble we're facing today, the epic trouble of being at odds with God and the daily troubles of life as we know it. Don't be troubled. You believe in God. Trust also in me. I'm going away. But I'm going to prepare a place for you and it's going to be awesome. I'm going to bring you to be with me ultimately. And, and all that you long for here, you and I will have. And you know how to get there. And at that point, Thomas responds exactly the way I would have responded. Now, some of you are more quiet you would have just contemplated Jesus' words. Others of you are more spiritual. You would have reverently agreed with Jesus' words. But Thomas says, what are you talking about? We, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? To which Jesus patiently responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know the Father. And from now on, you do know him. You've seen him. So first of all, Jesus is the way in the sense that he shows us what God looks like. He represents the exact way 
that God approaches us. He's also the way in the sense that he is the way to get to God. There's no other path by which our violation of the moral framework of the universe can be and will be dealt with. There's no other way by which the violation of the moral framework of the universe can and will be dealt with. No matter how sentimental you are about God, no matter how religious you get, you are still in violation and the inherent result hangs over your head. You may be far better than your neighbor. Whether our violation is pencil-sized or bowling-ballish, we are in violation of the law of sin and death. And in this regard, we do not need a friend. We do not need a teacher. We do not need an inspiration. We need a Savior. This is what Jesus meant when he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. This doesn't mean that he tells the truth, although he does. He is the truth. The truth is a person. I'm going to explain this by using a weird illustration for some of you, but hang with me. For those of you who are NBA fans, this is a great time of year to be NBA fans. It's almost playoff time, and for those of you who are NBA fans, you know that the Cleveland Cavaliers, that's the professional basketball team in the city of Cleveland, the Cleveland Cavaliers have a chance to win the NBA championship this year. They're going to be in the playoffs, they have a chance to win, even though sports prognosticators will give them very little chance because they're the sixth or seventh best team in the league, maybe the eighth best team in the league, and the NBA is different from March Madness, which is going on right now for college. It's not a one-and-done thing. They play a series of games, so there are very few upsets. Still, the Cleveland Cavaliers have a chance to win the NBA championship, not because of their coach, not because of the way they match up against some of the other teams in the playoffs, not because of a great defensive scheme or a great offensive scheme or a great game plan. The Cleveland Cavaliers have a chance to win the NBA championship, and all basketball fans will acknowledge this because LeBron James plays on their team. And LeBron James is the best basketball player on the planet, and it might not be close. He might be, if my son were able to argue, he might be the best basketball player who ever lived. Their odds of winning the championship are a person. Ultimately, the truth is not a set of principles or discoveries. Ultimately, the truth isn't found in opinion surveys or scientific research. Certainly, all those things reveal touches of the truth, hints of the truth. Two plus two is four. But ultimately, the truth is a person, literally. If you want to know the truth, you will know Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth. Finally, Jesus is the life. Real life in the now and in the forever is only available in Jesus Christ. I'm going to share an illustration with you. I teared up in the first service when I did this. I'm going to be ticked off if I tear up this time. It's a true story. It's very emotional. I'm telling you in advance, if any of you tear up, I'm mad. So just saying, a powerful illustration. Once upon a time, I had a young friend named Philip. Philip was born with Down syndrome. He was a pleasant child, happy, it seemed, but increasingly aware of the difference between himself and other children. Philip went to Sunday school at the Methodist church. His teacher, also a friend of mine, taught the third grade class with Philip and nine other eighth grade boys and girls. You know eight-year-olds, and Philip, with his differences, was not readily accepted. 
But my teacher friend was creative, and he helped the group of eight-year-olds. They learned, they laughed, they played together. And they really cared about one another, even though eight-year-olds don't say they care about one another out loud. My teacher friend could see it. He knew it. He knew it. He also knew that, that Philip was not really part of that group. Philip didn't choose, nor did he want to be different. He just was, and, and that's the way things were. My friend had a marvelous idea for his class the Sunday after Easter last year. You know those things that pantyhose come in, the containers that look like great big eggs. I don't know if they even do that anymore, but my friend had collected 10 of those pantyhose eggs. The children loved it when he brought them into the room. Each child was to get one. It was a beautiful spring day, and the assignment for each child was to go outside, find a symbol for new life, put it into the egg, bring it back into the classroom. Then they would open the eggs and share their symbols of new life with one another and surprise one another. It was glorious. It was confusing. It was wild. They ran all around the church grounds, gathered the symbols, returned to the classroom. They put all the eggs on the table, and then the teacher began to open them one by one. All the children stood around the table. He opened one that was a flower, and they oohed and odd. He opened another that was a little butterfly. Beautiful, all the girls said, since it's hard for eight-year-old boys to say beautiful. He opened another, and there was a rock. And as third graders will, some laughed and some said, that's crazy. How's a rock supposed to be like new life? But the smart little boy who found it spoke up and said, that's mine. And I knew all of you would get flowers and buds and leaves and butterflies and stuff like that. So I got a rock because I wanted to be different. And for me, that's new life. And they all laughed. My teacher friend said something to himself about the profundity of eight-year-olds. And he opened the next one. There was nothing there. The other children, as eight-year-olds will, said, that's not fair, that's stupid, somebody didn't do it right. And my teacher friend felt a tug on his shirt, and he looked down, Philip was standing beside him. It's mine, Philip said. It's mine. And the children said, you don't ever do things right, Philip. There's nothing there. I did so do it, Philip said, I did do it. It's empty. The tomb is empty. There was silence, a very full silence. And for you people who don't believe in miracles... I want to tell you that what happened that day, last spring. From that time on, it was different. Philip suddenly became a part of that group of eight-year-old children. They took him in. He was set free from the tomb of his differentness. Philip died last summer. His family had known since the time he was born that he wouldn't live out a full lifespan. Many other things had been wrong with his tiny body. So late last July with an infection that most normal children could have quickly shrugged off, Philip died. The mystery simply enveloped him. At the funeral, nine eight-year-old children marched up to the altar, not with flowers to cover over the stark reality of death. Nine eight-year-olds with their Sunday school teacher marched up to the altar and laid on it empty eggs, empty old discarded pantyhose eggs. Look, I know that doubts and fears and troubles are constantly threatening us. I know it's difficult to hang on to faith at times. Jesus knew that as well. And into the midst of our troubles, he said, don't be troubled. It's all going to be well. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And I have paid the penalty for all that you've done and all that troubles you. Now, for some of us this morning, that is a reminder for others of us, this is new information, and it's critical. Jesus is utterly, uniquely, and profoundly necessary. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So, I want to let you know, 
If you need to do some business with God this morning, if something has poked at your heart, if something has stirred you this morning, there are going to be a group of people over here who will pray for you, who will talk to you, who will do whatever. Don't leave without doing business if God wants and needs to do business with you. If something has stirred your heart today, we're going to end by singing an old hymn. So if you would, would you stand with me? And I'm going to say a word of prayer. Dear Father, this morning, we acknowledge that we have blown it. We acknowledge that we are in trouble, except for the fact that we have placed our trust, we've placed our faith in this remarkable story, in this unique human life, and in the completion of the system, in the, the mechanism that allows us to be fully and rightly connected to you and cleanly connected to ourselves and others. I pray, God, that you will speak into every heart today. Speak. Your people are listening. Now let's pause quietly for a minute and give God a, a minute. We, for some of us, this will be the, the only time we've been quiet this week. this old hymn. For those of you who don't, the melody is really easy. So choir, I want you to sing this. And by you, I mean you. And this is you and him. This is not the person next to you. This is you and him. I want you to sing these words. I want you to make this a declaration of faith as best you can. All that you know of yourself to all that you know of him, all that's in your heart to all of him, an act of your will. Jesus paid it all as the chorus to this old hymn. And no matter what it is, no matter what's happened this week or this month or this past year or over the last five years, no matter how, how dark the stain, no matter if it's a bowling ball or a planet, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Let's sing it.
to see my lips shall still repeat Jesus paid it all all to him I sin had left crimson stain he washed it white as snow sin Left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. Good singing choir. Let's lift this up. Make this our anthem this morning. Oh, praise the one. As we leave today and just pray that God multiplies these gifts, but on top of that, that, that we are able to see God at work in the lives of all of us. So will you stand with me and we're, we're going to pray and we're we'll close off for tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. And today we remember your resurrection and we're so grateful. Lord. We're so grateful because we are so separated from you and so desperately in need of our fine to be paid. Lord, we do stand in front of a courtroom with you as our judge. And Lord, you provided a way through your son, Jesus. He became the way. 
And Lord, we're so grateful because of what he sacrificed. Everything that he went through, Lord, should have been us. But you loved us. And you made that a way for us to reconnect to you. Today, Lord, we remember your sacrifice. And we remember, Lord, the victory that you have of defeating death. Because one day, Lord, you promise that we will experience that same thing for those who put their trust in you. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week.